Chapter Fifteen, Part One of the Autobiography of Moncure D. Conway, Volume One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Sermons at Washington, Letter from My Father, Settlement at Washington, Preaching at Richmond, Expelled from Falmouth for Abolitionism, Preaching at Charlottesville, Virginia, Letters from Reverend Dr. Burnap, Installation at Washington, Polemic about a fast day, Antecedents of the Washington Church, its eminent members, Chief Justice Cranch, Helen Hunt, President Pierce. There was but one cloud on my horizon. Slavery existed in the District of Columbia. I would have to deal with that subject, and as I was a Virginian connected with families well known in Washington, the Church would have to be informed of my anti slavery sentiments. My anxiety for the situation induced me to speak about slavery in my very first sermon at Washington, September 10, 1854. And as now we look forth on the world of humanity, and, remembering the burdens of old prophets who sang of the latter-day glory, and the saying concerning Christ, that he saw of the travail of his soul and was satisfied, so fair and perfect even to that perfect soul was the vision of the advancing world see it now frozen by a dread winter of evil see man's hand lifted against man in war see trade polluted by dishonesty so that what we eat and wear is poisoned and stained with crime see man enslaved by man until we scarce know in their degradation those brothers of Christ to whom we are anything but brothers, save for the well-known human cry which they ever send up appealing to heaven. Oh, as we remember this, see this, your worldly doctrine of calmness changes us to marble. On September 17th, text, Am I my brother's keeper? I again introduced the subject. I was then about to visit my parents at Falmouth, but in answer to my note on the subject, I received from my father the subjoined letter, dated at Falmouth, September 18, 1854. I cannot refrain from saying, I was truly glad you did not find it convenient to come down to-day. I have reason to know that it was fortunate for you that such was the case, and it is my sincere advice to you not to come here until there is reason to believe your opinions have undergone material changes on the subject of slavery. If you are willing to expose your own person recklessly, I am not willing to subject myself and family to the hazards of such a visit. Those opinions give me more uneasiness just now than your horrible views on the subject of religion, bad as these last are. You say in your last, it is strange that you meet with intolerance nowhere but at home. If you had but a small amount of that best of all sense, common sense, it would not seem at all strange that such should be the fact. I should treat all young men similarly situated, just as you are treated by others, but their parents and best friends would probably do towards them just as your parents and friends do towards you. A single moment's reflection would teach any common-sense person the reasonable propriety of our course. But having exhausted all our rational effort, we hand you over to the mercy of God, 
through our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and pray most earnestly that the ever-blessed Spirit may guide you aright. If you make shipwreck in this life and the next, you must not only wade through the precious blood of Christ, and do, despite to the Spirit of His grace, but your Father's prayers, so long as His life lasts, will be thrown in the way also. This letter had deep affection in it, and it grieved me less than it puzzled me. I had not made public any opinions concerning slavery, except in my two sermons at Washington. There had been no report of those utterances, and I was entirely ignorant of the rumors, referred to in the previous chapter, mixing me up in the fugitive slave case in Boston. My sister tells me that it was even said I had been summoned as a witness against the owner of Anthony Burns. I made no reply to my father's letter, and went on with my sermons. On October 29th, when by announcement the church was to meet after the morning services to elect a minister, I felt impelled to be perfectly explicit with the congregation, which I knew would all be present. My text was, Thy kingdom come, and in the discourse I said, Solomon said, There is nothing new under the sun. A greater than Solomon said, I create all things new. And his church, if true to his spirit, will feel that it is an aggressive thing, that his kingdom, though not of this world, is in it, that it must penetrate and redeem all institutions and change the world. The church must thus hold itself ready to pass free judgment on all customs, fashions, ideas, facts, on trade and politics, and, in this country, more especially hold itself ready to give free utterance in relation to our special national sin, the greatest of all sins, human slavery. Within fifteen minutes from the utterance of that sentiment I was elected minister, with but two contrary votes. This gave me confidence and happiness. I knew what my people could bear, and had no fear of trouble. My salary was ample for a young bachelor of those days. My friends found for me a pleasant suite of rooms on Sixth Street, between E and F, where I could entertain friends. That a congregation at the National Capitol, containing in it such men as Chief Justice Cranch, Mayor Seaton, Joseph Gales, and other eminent citizens well known in Virginia, had settled me as their minister, produced its impression on my relatives. The intelligencers' reports of my sermons were talked of in Fredericksburg, and my father began to feel that there were no longer grounds for the apprehensions expressed in his letter of September 18th. At the close of November I received a cheerful letter from my father, and a letter from my mother begging me to visit Falmouth. About the same time numerous letters from friends and relatives in Fredericksburg and Richmond urged me to visit them. Several Unitarians turned up unexpectedly in Fredericksburg, who said that they could get the town hall if I would preach there. This I declined for my father's sake, but I could not resist an invitation to preach in Richmond, Virginia, and gave, in the long, silent, Universalist church there, two discourses on the Sunday of January 21, 1855. After an altogether pleasant stay of several days in the house of my mother's brother, Traverse Daniel, no word being said about slavery, 
and no reproach heard about my heresy, this dear uncle accompanied me to both sermons. He said he feared that Unitarianism tended to cultivate the head more than the heart, which was a good hint to me. I had been invited to Richmond to expound unorthodox views, but I ought to have revealed the heart in them. I went up with a light heart to my dear old home in Falmouth. I was affectionately received by my parents, and all seemed about to go smoothly. But at night, when I was returning home from some visit, I was twice spoken to by Negroes, who whispered that my opposition to slavery and my course about Tony Burns were known among the colored people there, and they hinted expectations that I was contemplating some movement. I was shocked by this revelation, and of course disclaimed any such intention. But worse was to come. Next morning, as I was walking through the main street, a number of young men, some of them former schoolmates, hailed me and surrounded me. They told me that my presence in Falmouth could not be tolerated. "'Charles Frank Suttle,' said one, "'says that when he was in Boston you did everything you could against him to prevent his getting back his servant Tony Burns, and that you are an abolitionist. There is danger to have that kind of man among our servants, and you must leave. We don't want to have any row.' By this time a number of the rougher sort had crowded up, and there were threats. Then a friendlier voice said that, on account of their respect for my parents and family, they wished to avoid violence, and hoped that I would leave without such trouble. There was, I think, little danger of violence to myself. My parents, brothers, and other relatives constituted a large part of the little town, and whatever their disagreements from me would have seriously resented any injury. Yet I could not but recognize that, if only on their account, it was my duty to leave the place. I had no right to entangle them in quarrels. Moreover, the secret approaches of the Negroes on the previous evening suggested that there might indeed be some danger caused by the silly gossip of the whites. I therefore said to the crowd that I did nothing against Colonel Suttle and William Brent, beyond expressing to students who wished me to sympathize with them my lack of sympathy, but as there were rumors of the kind, and I had no desire to cause disturbance, I would leave next day. Of this incident I said not a word at home. It cut short my visit by two days only, and no special explanation was needed of my quick return to Washington, where I had to preach the following Sunday. There appeared no reason to the family why there should be any distress about parting, now that I was living so near, but to me it was a heavy moment when I left them. It was exile. As I was driven by our faithful coachman, James Parker, across the bridge and along the meadows, it was with a feeling that I should never see them again. At the first station, after leaving Fredericksburg, the train was entered by my father's eldest brother, Dr. Valentine Conway of Stafford. He had always been fond of me, but had no doubt heard Colonel Suttle's story, and spoke to me bitterly. I did not tell him that I was that day banished from my own home and relatives, but made what answer I could. Footnote. When I visited Fredericksburg twenty years later, to be welcomed and fated by those who once drove me away, 
Uncle Valentine again accompanied me on the cars in Stafford, and said, "'When we last rode together here, and I reproached you for your abolitionism, you made a reply I never forgot. You expressed wonder that we Virginians did not see that the agitation against slavery was part of a worldwide movement for human liberty.' a movement whose force was immeasurable and inevitable, and would ultimately overwhelm our southern institution. Your prediction has been fulfilled. We looked out on the dear old fields of Stafford, which the tramp of armies had desolated. End of footnote. Uncle Valentine parted from me at Aquia Creek, where at that time a steamboat continued the route to Washington. I sat on the deck, humiliated and weeping. I was just in my twenty-third year, and there was now brought home to me the terrible fact that the tyranny of slavery crushed not only the negroes, but the most loving hearts of all. I afterwards discovered that many good women, my mother among them, secretly cherished a hatred of slavery, and that many men had misgivings about the institution. They were compelled by a sort of reign of terror to sacrifice before the idol all expression of generous affections, this terror being caused by the gathering anti-slavery cloud in the North. In after years I could of course make a hundred excuses for those young people who ordered me out of Virginia. I was the first and only anti-slavery man they had ever met and I came just after the adventures of their townsmen Suttle and Brent in recovering Tony Burns had brought home to the little town some realization of northern antagonism to slavery. Martyrdom is as demoralizing to the martyr as to the persecutor. That incident in Falmouth was for me very unfortunate. It distorted my vision. Four years before, when Grace Greenwood advised me to read a story coming out in the National Era, Uncle Tom's Cabin, I read a few chapters, but did not care to obtain the further ones. Not only was I as yet in transition on the slavery question, but I recognized nothing in Mrs. Stowe's romance that was true of slavery in Virginia. But how terrible is the personal factor! Poor Shylock says, The curse never fell upon our race till now. I never felt it till now. I read Uncle Tom's Cabin with different eyes, and recalling every ugly incident connected with Negroes that I had seen since childhood, and at Warrenton the sale of slaves were ugly enough, though rare, I concluded that Mrs. Stowe's book was a photographic representation of things going on in states farther south. I still loved my state and the position I had at Washington, considered so enviable by other young ministers, by no means consoled me for the fading of my dream of an apostolate in Virginia. At the close of April a Unitarian minister, Mr. Crapster, was to fill my pulpit, and I seized the occasion for an excursion into the part of Virginia where I had never been. Accompanied by Franklin Philp, whose wife was the organist in my church, I visited Harper's Ferry, Ware's Cave, and the Natural Bridge, then made my way to Charlottesville. As we strolled through the beautiful grounds of the University of Virginia, and saw the fine-looking students, my old missionary dream revived. Hastening into the town, I secured a sort of hall, and placards were posted announcing that on the next afternoon, Sunday, I would preach.
I do not remember whether I announced any special subject, but probably indicated that it was unorthodox, for one or two students came primed for opposition in the discussion, which it was said would be invited. The room was crowded, mainly by university men, my name and connections were well known, and I had gathered up for the occasion what I considered the best passages of several sermons. No doubt I alluded to the rationalism of the founder of their university, President Jefferson, but was prudent enough not to make any allusion to slavery. My objections to the chief dogmas were based on both scriptural and rational grounds. The discussion that followed was quiet and scholarly. Fortunately, I had a little Greek testament along, and was able to score a point by proving that my text, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, etc., should be translated, Every scripture inspired by God is profitable, etc. My opponents, however, were well drilled in their faith, and no doubt as well satisfied as I was with the discussion. In that remote place, where Unitarianism was unknown, they were as eager as the ancient Athenians for some new thing, and I had pleasant interviews with some of them. One evening a large bonfire in the neighborhood of the university attracted my attention, and, on going out to it, found the students making around it a great hullabaloo whose cause I could not understand. But I now learned that Mrs. Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, had just arrived on a visit to her relative, the wife of Professor McGuffle. The occasion was seized for a frolicsome manifestation. Someone at our hotel told me that Mrs. Stowe was the only pretext for a frolic, as the faculty might be timid about repressing an orgy disguised as an expression of Southern sentiment. Whether there were any unpleasant effects for the professor's family or Mrs. Stowe, I do not know, but I went off feeling that there was an impassable barrier to my entering on any ministry in Virginia. I had received from Richmond a letter from Thomas H. Wynne, who had been on the staff of Cousin John Daniel's paper until he, Daniel, had been sent as minister to Sardinia, in which he said, Your discourses gave the fullest satisfaction, and numerous inquiries have been addressed to me in regard to the possibility of securing your services altogether. Had it not been for that incident at Falmouth, I should probably have left Washington and settled in Richmond. No Salvationist was ever more ardent than I was in my desire to grapple with the dark and evil powers steadily taking possession of my state. Meanwhile, however, my labors in Washington, and truly I toiled through all the daylight of the week, secured favor. Even my father was adapting himself to the situation on finding that I was steadfast to my aim. My discourses were rarely on public matters or polemical questions. They dealt mainly with the human heart and spiritual life, self-truthfulness, the functions of doubt and duty of inquiry. The congregation desired to make a grand occasion of my installation, and it was left entirely with me to select the ministers who should assist. The congregation had for a generation been hearing such various preachers, and become so familiar with varieties of belief that they were generally rationalistic. John Weiss, who preached at my installation, 
was already at the left wing of Unitarianism, as also was Samuel Longfellow. Dr. Furness of Philadelphia held a peculiar theory concerning Jesus. I had indeed endeavored to induce Dr. Ephraim Peabody to give the sermon because of my personal affection for him, but as he could not come, fixed on John Weiss on account of his advanced opinions. Personal affection also led me to invite Dr. Burnap to deliver the charge. This excellent man was, in a measure, responsible for me. He had aided me to enter on my studies in Cambridge. In taking up a rationalistic position, I had to suffer again some of the pain with which I had parted from my old Methodist friends. I was doing my best now as then to hold on to every doctrine that would keep me in spiritual union with them. I quote some of Dr. Burnap's letters relating to my settlement in Washington. November 18, 1854 I accept your proposition to deliver the charge in the coming ordination. I hope you will succeed in getting a great gun to deliver the sermon. I hope it will not be, however, one of the reactionists. It would not harmonize with me, and I am sure it would not with you. Let us have pure, honest Unitarianism, or abandon it altogether. You have a grand field before you. Wisdom, industry, patience, and perseverance. Get these, and you may make a deep and lasting mark on the metropolis. And may God give you his blessing. January 2nd, 1855 I fear that some latitudinarians of last spring and summer are operating to your disadvantage, though I have heard nothing of the kind. I think you ought to take some measures to disabuse those who may have misjudged you of their impressions as to your want of faith in historical Christianity. I know that it was our mutual friend Peabody's impression that you had hardly faith to preach. I throw out this as merely a friendly hint. I am much interested that you should do well, and valiantly, for the good cause in the capital of the nation. February 14, 1855 Son Timothy, I am glad that your ordination is coming off so soon. I shall endeavor to be prepared to give you some sound advice. But where are your letters missive? We Congregationalists are republics, and cannot act without the people, our constituency. You must invite the congregations, as well as the ministers, that we may carry with us a long delegation, to give us continuance and keep us straight. Dr. Burnap was a good deal troubled by the abolition complexion of the ordination services, and reminded me that one ism is enough at a time. Concerning my latitudinarian tendencies, he had apprehensions, but still called me his Timothy. In one of our talks he said, The miracles cannot be denied without tearing the New Testament to pieces. Christianity stands practically on three legs, miracles of Jesus, sanctity of Sunday, and the Christian ministry. Take either away, and it must topple over. End of chapter 15, section 1